Two weeks ago, we began a study of the Beatitudes, and we did an introduction and went over the first two Beatitudes. Today, we're going to take up the next three, and so let me begin by praying, asking God to open our eyes, and then we'll read a little bit of the passage and begin. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Uh, we are a needy people in need of your truth, your undertaking in our lives to sanctify us, to make us more like our Savior. We ask that you will give us understanding in the truth, in the Word of God, and that you'll work within us to demonstrate Christ in the way that we live. We ask for your help, your enlightenment to our souls at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and includes the Beatitudes. I'm not going to read all of it, just the portion that we're going to be dealing with today. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's as far as we're going today. Uh, two weeks from now, we'll finish the Beatitudes, taking up the last three. Today, we're going to begin with, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, and now blessed are the meek. All of this is foreign to our way of thinking. This is foreign to the bent of our heart. We humans know how to stand proud, be self-sufficient, be pious, be religious. And apart from God's revelation in our darkness and blindness, we don't realize how spiritually poor and unable we are. The last time we saw how, how to enter Christ's kingdom, to enter into life, we have to have a heart that admits that we have nothing to offer. We are spiritually destitute. People with that attitude of heart come to God in repentance they come mourning over their sin and rebellion. Even Jesus, when he was here, mourned. Not over his sin, but over the results of sin that were all around him. Brokenness of heart, sorrow over sin, humility, or meekness. These are the characteristics of God's people who come into his kingdom. Totally opposite 
to what the natural man would think. We think that it is the high and mighty, the strong, that get ahead. Go for the gusto, macho is great. Jesus came and identified with a pretty low crowd. Matthew 9:11. Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? His disciples were asked. And he said, in verse 13, Matthew 9:13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then in Luke 7:34, you say, behold a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So we see that Jesus hung out with a pretty crummy outfit, didn't he? Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, that no man should boast before God. One of our teachers uh, at Shanta, which means, uh, uh, it's the name of a university in China, said that her problem in coming to Christ was her pride. And as I've thought on these things lately, going over these, uh, these beatitudes, I find that we have a big problem with pride. And it's very insidious and it infects more than we think. Uh, pride is a huge, huge issue. And uh, God, God is uh, going to work in our hearts to change that. And he's at work within us to uh, make us meek and lowly. People's hearts must be changed. The kingdom could never be given to people whose hearts were opposite to God's heart. People don't run to God. They run away from God. God came looking for Adam and Eve. They were not looking for him. So our hearts must be changed. Meekness is a characteristic of God's people. God's character has always been the same. Look at his people in the Old Testament. Moses, for instance. Moses is spoken of as being very meek, more than anyone else on earth. Numbers 12, verse 3. Only God could have known that. David, Israel's great military general, said, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Psalm 25, verse 9. And in Psalm 22, verse 26, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. There's another psalm. This is, it doesn't give the author. I don't know if it was David or not. Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the meek. What about people in the New Testament? Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says... I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness. Paul is saying the way of Christianity, the way of Christ, the character of Christians is meekness. Titus 3.2, speak evil of no man, 
Be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. All meekness unto all men. Colossians 3.12 Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, a heart of compassion, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness. These are God's type of people. These are the type of people in God's kingdom. Now, if this is the type of people in the kingdom, what is that? What does it mean to be meek? After reading on this subject, I don't know that I can do justice to the meaning. Being poor in spirit, that is the first beatitude, relates to my attitude and standing before God, being utterly destitute, admitting to him that I have nothing to offer him. Being meek relates to my attitude both to God and to others. How do I handle it when others put me down? criticize me, unjustly deal with me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is more humbling than what has gone before. And by that he means the other two Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek is more humbling than um, the first two Beatitudes where, uh, where, where we read that uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn. He says this is even more difficult. Our brokenness before God issues, that is being poor in spirit, issues in relationships with others. In meekness, we're dealing with, based on our submission to God, we're now dealing with people. How does it affect my dealing with other people? The bottom line of meekness is, is submission to God. That's where it begins, submitting to the Lord. Being poor in spirit focuses on our sin and helplessness before God, and it results in sorrow for sin. Meekness focuses on God, submitting to him, to his authority, realizing he has the right to tell me what to do and the power to defend me. Remember the verse, Titus 3.2, showing all meekness unto all men. We are to be meek toward all. I can be meek to men because I submit to God. I am meek for the Lord's sake. 1 Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So I am submitting to the Lord because that's what he wants me to do. Meekness trusts God and does not seek revenge. It trusts God who said, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's his right. And meekness submits to God. Let's look at the word meek. In English, meek means a couple things. It means patient mild, not inclined to anger or resentment. And then there's another meaning that's probably comes to the fore more in our thinking, and that is as follows, easily imposed on, spineless, spiritless. That's probably the way 
we Americans think of meekness, but that's not the biblical concept. The word in the Bible, the Greek word, means mild, gentle, or soft. A meek person is one who is gentle, mild, tender-hearted, patient, submissive. One source that I was reading gave some helpful illustrations. The word is used to describe a soothing medicine. The wrong dose of medicine can kill you. Under control, it can heal you. It's used to describe a gentle breeze. A hurricane, a tornado, wreaks havoc. A gentle breeze refreshes, cools, and revives the spirit. It's used to describe a colt that has been broken. An unbroken horse will destroy. A broken one will submit and be gentle. So meekness is living under control, God's control. As I see it, meekness is recognizing that God has authority, power, and the right to do his good pleasure in my life. I am his. I'm under his authority. It means that I live under that authority, trusting him to do with me as he pleases. If people do me wrong, I don't have to retaliate. God will vindicate me and will deal with all evildoers. I can trust him. A meek person is able to be mild, gentle, in all sorts of situations or with all sorts of people because he submits to God and trusts God to care for him. When he would naturally lash out and retaliate, he realizes that's not his job. That's God's job. The meek will wait on God and his timing. That's what we're talking about is not easy to do. <laughs> if you stop and think about it, that is opposite to the way that we would tend to operate. Jesus was not weak, but he was meek. Talk about power under control. Meekness is not weakness. When the temple was profaned, twice he cleansed it by force. He often scathingly condemned the religious leaders and pronounced judgments on those who didn't teach God's word correctly. Here was a man who could raise people from the dead. That's power. Nobody else had power like that. He put, he put fear in the heart of the Jewish leaders. Right after he cleansed the temple the second time and said, you have made it a robber's den, we read in Mark eleven eighteen, 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. He was not weak by any means, but he was meek. Though he was hailed as the coming king, he was described as meek and sitting upon a donkey. That's not high-class transport. Paul referred to the meekness and gentleness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.1. Jesus said, learn of me. Learn of me, for I am meek, Matthew 11.29. 29. 
Isaiah speaks of him by saying, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Isaiah 42, 2. In 1 Peter 2, 21, we read as follows. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That means that all accusations and punishment that he received was totally wrong. All abuse he received was a violation. Every accusation a lie. All slander was out of line. And then notice what it says in verse 23. This is 1 Peter 2, 23. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But here's the key. What's the key to meekness? But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is meekness. Meekness patiently endures wrongs unjustly suffered. It can do that because it trusts God. He knows he will bring about absolute justice in the end and vindicate his people. What happens to the meek? They are blessed. They have God's favor. Blessed are the meek. They have his favor, his joy, his peace, his approbation, his approval, and they have an inheritance, the earth. It means to be an heir, to obtain by inheritance. Romans 8, 17 says, If children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We don't have to be grasping, fighting for our rights. We can trust our Creator. What has He promised us? Everything. Everything. It's, it's actually staggering to think about, and I don't have any real concept of what it all means, but it says that we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Who can even imagine what that is? Psalm 37, verses 8 to 11, says this, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place, and he will not be there. But the meek will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. So, we need to check ourselves, folks. How do we handle criticism? People thinking evil of us. When your rights are violated, can you obey God and trust Him? Do you pity yourself? Are you gentle or explosive? Are you vindictive? Here's a, here's a, a good question. Are you easily offended? Pretty easy to be offended. Uh, it, it goes against our nature to, uh, to trust God. It goes according to our old nature to be vindictive, to seek revenge, get even, defend myself. Jesus was meek, 
and he expects us to be meek. And he's working that in our lives. We'll now go to the next beatitude. Blessed are those, this is Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Because of sin, man is estranged from God. We were made for God. And when we are estranged from him, things are not well with us. There's an emptiness in our hearts, and we look to fill it. So we end up in a maddening chase after pleasure, fun, good times, money, cars, houses, land, clothes, power, position, fame, recognition, and on and on, what most people are trying to find. And it's like chasing the wind. When you think you have it, you realize you don't, and the chase continues. Man looks in the wrong place for the vacuum to fill the vacuum of his soul. He does not know what he is lacking, but God knows, and Jesus knew. Jesus came offering to man true blessedness. A blessedness that comes from a different search. A search for something else than just finding a blessing. True blessedness is not found as an end in itself, but is the product of a higher search. And it has to do with the condition of our hearts. Men are breaking their necks in a futile effort to gain what God wants to give them. Going at it our way will never succeed, but coming to God in His way under his conditions, where you aren't striving to get it, you get it all. Later in this sermon, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Psalm twenty two twenty six, David says, The meek shall eat and be satisfied. And here in Matthew 5, right after Jesus mentions the meek, we just talked about that. He talks about what we should be desiring. What are we hungering and thirsting for? What do the meek desire? He speaks of it as hungering and thirsting. Well, let's talk about hungering and thirsting. There's the physical aspect that we well understand. Our bodies are made to need food and water. Food and water are necessities of life that we have got to have in order to survive. And though we ultimately live by the will of God, yet God has so arranged the ordinary processes of life so that food and water are of vital importance to us for our survival. A person who is hungry or thirsty has a very strong ambition. And when you're really hungry, nothing else really matters. All you can think about is getting something to eat. Have you ever been hungry? Uh, I don't know that I've ever been hungry. And you probably haven't been either. <laughs> Not really hungry. Uh, the closest I came to being hungry was many years ago, my wife and I and my daughter went on an evangelistic trip to a, a peninsula on the north coast of New Guinea, and uh, we took a bag of rice with us. 
And what we didn't know was that that area was devoid of food. And all we had to eat for the whole week that we were there, basically, was this bag of rice that we took with us and green bananas. They had green bananas there because no ripe ones because the, the bananas would be stolen off the trees before they got ripe. So all they could harvest was green bananas. And all we had to eat was green bananas and rice for a week. I lost 15 pounds that week. And my wife and daughter lost a lot of weight as well. Uh, but you know what? We had food. So, I, you know, that, that's the closest I've ever come to being hungry. Um, but we had food. So we weren't starving. We had rice and green bananas. Um, <clears throat> John MacArthur, in his commentary, he uh, includes a story uh, that he evidently read in a magazine that was written by E.M. Blakelock. And in this story, I'll just relate it very briefly. Uh, it's taken from a book called The Romance, <clears throat> The Romance of the Last Crusade by Vivian Gilbert. Now, when I saw Vivian, I'm thinking, uh, it's a lady. It's not. <laughs> this is a British officer <laughs> in the British Army, Vivian Gilbert, a different culture. Uh, and the British Army was driving up through uh, the southern part of Israel, up through the Negev, past Beersheba, and they were driving before them the Turkish army. And the British um, ran out of water. They outdistanced their camel train that carried the water. And I looked this up. I went and found the book where it actually t tells the story. And you can get it on Amazon for $90, or you can get it online for free. And, and there it is, published in 1923, an account by a British officer of their drive up past Beersheba, uh, uh, driving the Turkish army before them. They ran out of water. Uh, and here's what happened. Eyes became bloodshot, lips swelled, turned purple. I even read in the book where their tongues got so big, they couldn't even hardly talk. That's how bad it was. They knew that if they did not make the wells of Sharia by nightfall, thousands of them would die. And to make a long story short, they were able to drive the Turkish army out of Sharia wells. And there, as water was distributed from the great stone cisterns, the more able-bodied were required to stand at attention and wait for the wounded and those who would take guard duty to drink first. It was four hours before the last man got his drink. And during that time, these men stood no more than 20 feet from thousands of gallons of water, the drink of which was their consuming passion. And this officer, Vivian Gilbert, said, I think, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to Sharia Wells. And uh, this is not found in his book, but I think it's a, an addition by Blakelock. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness and for his will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would we be? So, you know, have you ever been hungry? <laughs> have you ever been thirsty? We don't know much about that, really. I mean, we've, we do know a little bit about hunger, but not much. 
and about thirst. Anyway, you know, if you take that over to spiritual things, how thirsty are we? How hungry are we? Spiritually, we were created spiritual beings in God's image. Originally, we were righteous in a right standing with our creator. Now we are not righteous, desperately in need to be righteous. Righteousness is an absolute imperative. Without it, there's no spiritual life, no blessedness. Jesus here says that anyone coming into his kingdom thirsts for righteousness. They must have righteousness. We enjoy eating and drinking. Likewise, eating and drinking of God's truth and learning his ways, discovering his mercies and grace, his judgments and ways of dealing with sin and sinners, his character and his commandments bring great delight to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's some statements out of Psalms, Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 111 says, I have inherited thy testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Psalm 119, verse 162, I rejoice at thy word as one who finds great spoil. And there's some examples in the Bible of those who hungered for God. David, David knew God. He was so close to God, it is said that he was a man after God's own heart. Not only that, but he wrote many psalms expressing his relationship to God. But listen to what was in his heart. This is Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, thou art my God. I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He was in that very land of that story that I just related a while ago. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Psalm 42, 1. David also said in Psalm 16, 11, In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. And in Psalm 36, 7 to 8, David says, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. That was in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, hungered for righteousness. She was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. And Jesus said, only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Luke 10, 39 to 42. So what are we hungry and thirsty for? We're supposed to be thirsting for righteousness. Not blessedness. Blessedness comes from hungering for righteousness. Righteousness is imperative for spiritual life. Without it, no one will see God or his kingdom. Donald Carson says that righteousness here means a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. There's two aspects to righteousness. 
Number one, when a person hungers for righteousness, he seeks a right relationship to God. He is initially in need of being rescued from sin and ushered into God's kingdom. He's in need of the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. In poverty of spirit, that's the first beatitude, he acknowledges his sin. In mourning, he grieves and turns from his sin. In meekness, he submits to God and he hungers for the righteousness of God. So the first aspect is imputation, the righteousness that Christ gives us. The second is sanctification. For those who have submitted to Jesus Christ and have received his righteousness, there is an ongoing hunger for practical daily righteousness. How is our hunger satisfied? Hendrickson says it is by imputation and by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Thus we obtain a righteousness of inner condition and outward conduct. Inwardly we are born of God. Outwardly we begin to demonstrate righteousness in the way that we live. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a few things to say about this I thought were interesting. The righteousness we thirst for includes justification and sanctification. This is the desire to be free from sin in all its forms and its every manifestation. A desire to be free from sin because sin separates from God. So it is a a desire to be right with God. Sin pollutes the essence of our being. And the Christian desires to be free from all that. To hunger and thirst is the longing to be holy, to show the fruit of the Spirit in all that I do. It is the longing to be like Christ. Look at his obedience to God's law, his reaction to people, his kindness, his compassion, and his reaction to his enemies. If we are born again, that is the image we have been born to. When we're born again, what is the image that is implanted in our heart? It's the image of Christ. It's him. Uh, It's a longing to be like Christ. If we're born again in his image, we've been fashioned after his pattern, his image. So now that we have been created in Christ Jesus, fashioned after his image, We want to live like he lived, demonstrating his character in our lives. What happens to those who hunger and thirst? First, they are blessed. They have God's favor, his blessedness, joy, peace, contentment, approval, the approval of God, great blessing. Secondly, Jesus says they'll be filled, they'll be satisfied. They're going to receive what they are after. The word is used of feeding animals until they're full. They want no more. God satisfies his people, but in this life, we will never be fully like Christ. So we keep wanting more. Paul's desire was that I may know him. That I may know him. That should be our desire as well. Listen how God describes the satisfaction of the hungry. 
Psalm 107, verse 9. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. The young li- this is Psalm 34, 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. John MacArthur gives some, um, some tests. Here's some tests. Are you satisfied with yourself? If so, you're not thirsty. What satisfies your heart? Stuff? A thirsty man only wants water. Do you long to be like Christ? Are you hungry for God's word? And another is, do you gladly receive God's discipline and rebuke? Proverbs 27, verse 7 says, to a hungry soul, any bitter thing is sweet. To a hungry man, any bitter thing is sweet. The one in here, this is a quote from Thomas Watson. The one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness can feed on the myrrh of the gospel as well as the honey. Maybe you can help me understand that. I don't know what myrrh is. Uh, I've never tasted myrrh. But I take it it must be bitter and not real appetizing. The one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness can feed on the myrrh of the gospel as well as the honey. To a hungry soul, any bitter thing is sweet. So the discipline that God gives us, we accept because we're hungry for righteousness. Do you want to be blessed? Don't make that your goal. Thirst for Christ, seek him with all your heart, and he will find you and throw in great blessing to your great joy. We're now going to move to the last beatitude for the day, that is Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Before sin entered the world, there was evidently no need for mercy. In a fallen world, mercy is desperately needed. God is the author of mercy. He is merciful, and he calls upon his people to show mercy. What are people like apart from God, apart from his mercy, apart from his salvation and the new nature he creates in those who are poor in spirit? Here is a rundown of man apart from God's working in his heart. And I'm quoting from Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. That's the last one. Unmerciful. This does not mean that man is as wicked as he possibly can be at all times. Hendrickson gives us a balanced view by quoting Acts 28, verse 2, where Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, along with all the people that were on board ship with him. And we read, uh, we, we read about, uh, about what happened there. Uh, Hendrickson, uh, sorry. In Acts 28, 2, lost my place. It says, and the natives showed us extraordinary affection. That's mercy. The natives showed us extraordinary affection. The people helped them after the shipwreck. And that is contrasted with Proverbs 12.10, which says a righteous man knows the value of his, the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Mercy is not characteristic of people. Ungodly people. It's not characteristic of them. In Jesus' day, Rome ruled. What was the prevailing view in Rome? One author describes it this way. A Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. It was a supreme sign of weakness. You didn't have what it took to be a he-man. A real Roman. They glorified manliness, strict justice, firm discipline, and more than all, absolute power. Mercy was weakness, and weakness was the human limitation most despised. In Israel, among the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the religious elite... They were not inclined toward mercy. They were proud, judgmental. MacArthur says proud, judgmental, self-righteous people aren't inclined to be merciful. Into this milieu or environment came Jesus of Nazareth. He said, blessed, greatly favored by God are the merciful. What is mercy? The word means to have compassion on, to pity. One writer says this, Mercy is love for those in misery and a forgiving spirit toward the sinner. This mercy grows out of the personal experience of the mercy of God. In other words, the mercy that God has shown us then enables us to show mercy to others. One author says its basic meaning is to give help to the afflicted and to rescue the helpless. It is compassion in action. So I'm going to uh, just compare mercy with several different um, things here. The first one being forgiveness. What's, what's the relationship of mercy and forgiveness? In Daniel chapter 9, verse 9, we read, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. In Psalm 130, verse 7, 
we read, Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. So forgiveness rises out of mercy. But mercy is more than forgiveness. Jacob says in Genesis 32.10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Psalm 119, verse 64, The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Because of God's great mercy, he forgives us. But his mercies to us go beyond just forgiveness, but reach to all our needs. What about mercy and love? Forgiveness flows out of mercy, but mercy flows out of love. Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. See, he's rich in mercy because of his great love. God loves us, so in, is merciful to us, meeting many needs, chief of which is our sin problem. So he provides forgiveness. Love has always been there. God is love. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the earth before there was any need of mercy. Mercy operates from love to meet need. When there's no more need for mercy, there'll be always be love. What about mercy and grace? What's the, what's the relationship between mercy and grace? These are very closely connected. Mercy deals with sin's problems, the negative effects that sin has brought on us, Grace removes the sin. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the best definition of the two, that is grace and mercy, that he has heard is grace is especially associated with men in their sin, mercy especially associated with men in their misery. In other words, grace deals with the basic sin problem, mercy deals with the effects of sin. Mercy deals with the results of sin. Mercy offers forgiveness. Grace offers heaven. Perhaps we are cutting too sharp a distinction here. I don't know. John Piper thinks that these two, grace and mercy, are two sides to the same coin. What about mercy and justice? If God is just, how can he show mercy? Justice demands the full penalty. Mercy offers less than the full penalty or no penalty. The truth is that no mercy can be shown without the full penalty being paid. When I was um, a freshman or a sophomore, freshman and sophomore in high school, I was in a dormitory at Faith Academy in Manila, Philippines. And our house parents ran a tight ship. And when we went off to school every morning, we had to leave our dorm room in ship shape. And sometimes the bell would, we could hear the bell at the school ring. There were two bells. The first one was the alarm, giving you five minutes to get there. And if you heard the first bell, you knew you had to, to be getting over there right now. And uh, the floor is still not totally swept. And so what do you do? 
Well, you just sweep it under the rug and be on your way. <laughs> God does not operate that way. I mean, we can pull the wool over our house parents' eyes maybe, but you can't pull the wool over God's eyes, and he doesn't operate that way. He does not sweep anything under the rug. Um, he does not show mercy willy-nilly. He is absolutely just. The issues of sin, righteousness, mercy, and justice are securely in his hands. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's why we're not allowed to dabble in the vengeance category. What is just and fair is way beyond us. God knows what's just and fair. When God shows mercy, it is because he has paid the penalty for our sin. When Jesus died, he bore the eternal debt, the wrath of God for us. When a person repents and turns to Christ, God's mercy comes pouring down upon him. And he demands that we, in turn, show mercy to others. When others sin against us, we're to forgive. We pay a price. When we see our fellow man in trouble, we show them mercy and pay the price. But you know what? We don't have to worry about that. We've been forgiven an eternal debt. An eternal debt. We could never pay. Impossible. Whatever price we pay in showing mercy to others, God knows all the details. He will take care of that. MacArthur says, in every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. God did, the good Samaritan did, and so do we. To be merciful is to bear the load for someone else, unquote. Remember, whatever it costs you to be merciful, to forgive, whatever price you pay to forgive, to show kindness, to show compassion and mercy, will be more than made up to you who are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. <laughs> when you stop and think about it, that should blow you away. You've got everything in Christ. You're a fellow heir with Christ. And like I said before, we can't even begin to know what that entails. Where does mercy come from? It's not natural to us. That's not natural. It is an attribute of God. It's come to light since sin entered the world. It's an attribute that he shares with us by his spirit. It is the fruit of the spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the gospel emphasizes being rather than doing. Attitude and character over deeds. We must be Christian before we act Christian. We are meant to be controlled by Christ through his spirit from the inside out. We are said to be born again, a new creation. Our actions are an expression of who we really are. Here we see that Christ calls on us to be merciful. And that is what the new image the image of Christ that has been formed us in us is like. So the word being merciful is not talking about someone who has a natural disposition to be easygoing, puts up, up with all kinds of things just to get along. 
This is God's attribute. He is righteous. He is holy. He is just. And our mercy must be like his. The character of Christ lived out in us. So who gets the blessing? God said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Those upon whom he has mercy realize they have nothing in themselves to merit eternal life. They come to Christ with empty hands, contrite heart, grieving over sin, submitting to God and thirsting for his righteousness. These are they who get the kingdom, whose lives have been changed. They have received mercy, and now they are enabled to show mercy. When they show mercy, they are given even more mercy. It is because we've been shown mercy that Jesus says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Luke 6, 36. He also said that without me, you can do nothing. By his enablement poured out in us, by his spirit, we can reflect the mercy that he has shown us. And we can reflect that to others. Are you merciful? Here's some things to think about. Do you hold a grudge? Do you nurse resentment in your heart? Do you gossip about other people's weaknesses? And here's some examples to follow. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, 34. That was Jesus on the cross. Another one, Jesus on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Mercy. Luke 23, 43. Another one on the cross. Behold, your mother said to John, Jesus caring for the need of his mother. John 19, 27. Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Acts seven sixty. Mercy being shown to others. What can we do? We need to pray for people. We can pray for Christians who are in prison. It may be more of a general prayer because we don't know specifics. You know, there's Christians all over the earth and many who are suffering. You've probably heard of Andrew Brunson. He was a missionary in Turkey that was in prison some years ago, and he was in prison a couple of years, and Pretty rough situation. Uh, when, a, when a person is thrown in prison, in a foreign country especially, I mean, he's in deep, deep trouble. Um, staring at a blank wall day in and day out, week after week, month after month. And Brunson was thrown in with radical Muslims that were in prison with him. Think of that. You know, how do, how do Christians... Well, you know, here they are, in prison. And, and we got... Christians in prison all over the world right now. We need to pray for them, that God sustain them and help them and uh, support them and, and, uh, and help them in their faith, that their faith not fail. Uh, we can show mercy that way. Another thing is to share the gospel with your neighbor. 
give the gospel to people, showing mercy to them, that they may know the Lord and find his mercy for them, his forgiveness. Proverbs eleven seventeen: The merciful man does good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubles his own flesh. May God help us to demonstrate mercy in our lives, to be like Christ, and to uh, be being sanctified, becoming more and more like Christ in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are a lot higher than our ways. May you enable us to be like Christ, to grow increasingly, being sanctified, demonstrating your character in the way that we live. We do pray for Christians throughout the earth that are being persecuted, hunted down, imprisoned, psychologically being greatly uh, uh, hurt and uh, being tested beyond measure. Lord, support them, strengthen them. May their faith be strengthened and, and may you care for them and meet their needs. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.